Hi, welcome to episode 16 of Laser. This is our first episode in over a month. This week we discuss Chris's recently accepted paper on using an inorganic zinc sulfide window layer in organic solar cells, and a recent press release from the Naval Research Laboratory documenting successes in creating a usable fuel from carbon dioxide they extracted from seawater. Hey, I can hear you guys now. Hey! Are we in okay volume? Yeah, you're fine. Can you turn Chris's volume a little? Chris, talk for a sec. Talk, talk, talk. It's better. Yeah, it's better. Alright. Also, Chris, before we start, I read your abstract, and I already have a couple bones to fix. So, Chris, I hear you worked on a really interesting project for part of your life. Wait, I think we have to start the show first. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to... Hi, everybody, and welcome to Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. Um, I'm Cameron Kovas, and I'm a graduate student studying material science. And uh, we've got kind of a full crew today. My co-hosts are Sivan, who is here. <laughs> hi, guys. Okay, Sivan says hi. And uh, Chase. Hey, listeners in apparently all... Six continents of this one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We just we just had we've had downloads in every continent except Antarctica now. Yep. Uh, as of a couple days ago. Insert cheering sound effect. All right, I'll put a cheering sound effect in. And uh, when you try to turn this into like some sort of like radio show, <laughs> it's, it's weird it, like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Like a morning talk show on the radio. We need a baby soundboard and why don't we have that? Just make it a Some bunch of podcasts do. I just you could just make it a bunch of robot noises, and we should probably also introduce our our yeah co-hosts. yeah. And uh, oh, all the way on the other side of the internet, we have uh, Chris joining us from Michigan. Hi there, it's your remote correspondent, Chris from Lansing. In the field, Chris, are you in the field right now? I don't think so. It'd be cold. Yeah, no, I'm in my bedroom. It's Michigan. It's very cold outside. <laughs> it's actually warmer here today than it is in Arizona. What? It's cool today, so... I don't believe it. It's in the 90s here today. No way. Um, my weather widget says 80. Yeah, it's like 80 today. No way. We were, we were just outside. It's cool. I just thought I was used to it by now. <sighs> yeah, no. It's actually cooler today. Anyway, not the point. Uh, today is our... It's only... Yeah. Uh, so today is our first episode in almost a month, so this is kind of a... Getting back in the swing of, of podcasting, so now that everybody's done traveling all over the world and going to conferences and finals are over. And uh, Chris just finished his uh, quals. or Qualifying yeah. exams. Chris yeah. just finished his quals, so that's that's a good. Well, we should all cheer for Chris. Woo! Point for us to have a cheering sound. Yeah, next time. <laughs> so anyway, we're back, and hopefully we should record regularly from now on. That also, I think you're just branching that because it's an excuse to say why we're so rusty and we seem so out of practice. That's because we are out of practice. We are. Rusty. Yeah. We're bad at this. We're terrible at this. Um, and this is we should keep listening. People. You should keep listening no matter what because it can only oh, get Savant, better. Oh, ever the saleswoman. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so today I think we've got to decide to go. We, we, we cobbled together a theme at the last minute. I believe we're doing a, a, it's a, our summer fun edition where we talk about the ocean and also the sun. Yeah. Yeah. I guess since it's the, the first episode of uh, Summer the Beach. Of summer. Yeah. What? On the beach. On the beach. Okay. All right. It's a great theme. This is where we would have had a sound effect of waves crashing. Just imagine everybody waves. talking right now is wearing a bikini. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Wait, you guys aren't wearing bikinis? I, I, I missed the memo on that. <laughs> Chris, how does your cat look in it? Cute, right? Yes. That's a little weird. Let's go with that. It's cute. Don't be so body normative. I guess. Yeah, I'm Cameron. Kidding. Yeah, what's wrong with Human you? Human normative or something. All right, anyway. Who, uh, what do we want to talk about first? Sun, Maybe, paper. yeah. Okay. So our sun portion of uh, today's summer episode is a a paper that is uh, going to be published in the Journal of Applied Physics, and it is written by, by Chris uh, Travers. Chris Travers, yeah. Who is so? We're gonna stop talking and taking the words out of his mouth and let him uh, take over explaining a little bit about what the paper's about. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, the paper that I wrote is entitled Efficient Sink Sulfide Catheters for Organic Photovoltaic Applications via N-Type Doping. Uh, so, basically... Yeah, <laughs> Wait, can, can, you, can, you, can you run that back bias? Up, back it up, hombre. Like, maybe, you know, five seconds slower. Right. Five seconds slower. Uh, so, slowly, Efficient Zinc Sulfide Catheters for Organic Photovoltaic Applications via N-Type Doping. I know that's quite a mouthful. Um We'll get to what what every word of that means in the paper. Uh, All right. So I'll go. I'll just go through the motivation for this research uh, real quick. So in organic photovoltaics, you have the active layers which actually are responsible for all the power generation, and, and you have a few other getting that power out to the cathodes in an efficient manner. So most, one of the layers that we're going to focus on is called the buffer layer, and in this paper we call it the window layer. Uh, the reason why we do that in the paper is because we want it to be visibly transparent. So the idea is that this will eventually get applied to visibly transparent devices. We don't do that in this paper, but um, we'll do that eventually. So uh, anyways, so this is... So you're just laying groundwork for eventually visibly transparent devices? That's right. Um, so nice. This, this paper is a is a first demonstration of a new of a new uh, cathode side buffer layer, which uh, nobody's nobody's dem- nobody's made any devices with an inorganic material before. Uh, we just kind of lay the groundwork and we'll leave it to either ourselves or other people to do some further optimization. Anyway, wait, you mean nobody's made an inorganic organic combination? Well, nobody's nobody has made has used an inorganic material in the layer that we just did in this paper. In an organic solar cell. Yeah. Not right. Well, moly trioxide is, is an organic material and that's been used lots of times. Um, okay. So this so I guess let me just see if I can just try and uh, explain the kind of the motivation behind this. So in most uh, organic photovoltaics you'll have uh, what's called the buffer layer. And this buffer layer is a wide band gap N type semiconductor which, whose purpose is to block excitons from reaching the cathode. Uh, we don't want excitons to reach the cathode because if they quench at the cathode, meaning that they recombine, they'll reduces the conductivity and ultimately the efficiency. Uh, the next reason is to protect the active layers, the organic layers below it, during both the deposition of the cathode layer and during the lifetime of the device. So this is really, really key here because if you look at if you look at previous organic photovoltaic devices, they use a material called 
called bathocuprine, BCP for short. And uh, BCP is an organic material, so it's just as susceptible to effects from oxygen and moisture and heat as the other organic layers. So that's kind of counterintuitive, except that it does serve the purpose of uh, blocking extons from reaching the cathode pretty well. So ideally, in order to maximize lifetime, we need to find an inorganic material to replace BCP as that buffer layer material. So uh, the mechanism in which in which uh, BCP doesn't really add any lifetime is that uh, being a low molecular weight organic material, BCP will start to crystallize in the presence of uh, any reasonable heat. So what that crystallization will do is it'll absolutely ruin the conductivity of the, of the layer and the efficiency of the device is going to tank. So we don't want that to happen. And inorganic material will uh, will help us avoid that. And uh, that's what we find here. So, um, Chris, is that yep. because it's less sensitive to temperature? Um, partially because it's less sensitive to temperature, uh, also because it's less sensitive to oxygen and moisture. Okay, so it's an overall better substitute, is what you're saying. Right. Okay. Um, so, the way we went about doing this is uh, we've, we reviewed a whole bunch of different possible materials that we could review. This, this took about a year to go through all these different materials to finally land on zinc sulfide. And even when we got to zinc sulfide, when we tried, when we tried just uh, using undoped zinc sulfide in our OPV devices, efficiency was pretty terrible. We only got about 0.6% efficiency, whereas the control devices that used BCP as the buffer layer were around 1.8%. So we had a long way to go. You, you, you're saying it's, it had 2% efficiency, 2% efficiency in what? Like, what how sense? did you measure it? In what? Like, how did he measure, measure yeah, it, right? So what, what is solar cell efficiency? Yeah, what is the efficiency? What is, what is the efficiency? Are we talking about, like, the actual conversion of, like, solar of solar power to, of, like, you know, solar energy to usable energy? Right. It's Yeah, it's the power conversion efficiency. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Percentage, percentage of incoming energy from the sun that's converted into usable power. Okay. And for, for an organic, we should probably just give a baseline. Organics are typically one to... Five percent efficient, is that right? Um, well, those are uh, better organics are around nine to ten percent. Okay. That's only if you use really expensive materials, and uh, we didn't really bother with that because we're only looking at the buffer layer. Uh, you have to use like you have to use much better uh, active layer materials than what we use to, in order to achieve those. Because in general, the big the big advantage of organic solar cells is that they're so much cheaper than the, uh, the solid state, the inorganic cells. That's which right. those have efficiencies of 25%, but they're just a lot more expensive. Right. Okay. And um, going back to what you were saying, mentioning earlier, um, you were comparing your efficiencies to the efficiencies in controlled devices. Right. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on what those are and how that relates to what you're comparing it to? So a control device, in, with every set of zinc sulfide devices we make, we make an equivalent set with uh, BCP as the buffer layer. Uh, as a control, so since BCP is the material we're trying to replace, right? So uh, we compare we compare our zinc sulfide we uh, we compare our zinc sulfide devices against the BCP controls that are uh, equivalent in fabrication in every way except for that buffer layer. Uh, all the other active layers are grown simultaneously. And so everything is exactly the same: the thickness, the layer sequence, everything except for the buffer layer, which you're continuing to use BCP, which has been used up until now. That's right. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Yes. Your cat's yeah. really talking a lot, though. Jeez, you yeah, she's, she's vocal. That's cool. <laughs> no, that was a big one. She just did. Yeah, that was a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Got a mutant kitty over there. Oh, we're talking about Savon. 
Okay. Now, in the paper, you also talk about uh, previous inorganic buffer layers have been, people have done previous inorganic buffer layers, but they've used uh, cadmium sulfide. That's right. So uh, CAD sulfide's been used in uh, inorganic photovoltaic devices, such as uh, SIGS devices and uh, CAD Telluride uh, thin film devices. Um, the reason why we want to stay away from these devices uh, is because, for one, it prevents a pretty big health hazard during the device fabrication since cadmium is quite toxic. And second of all, uh, cadmium sulfide has a small band gap. Uh, I listed in the paper, I think it's 2.4. Right? So, yeah, yeah, it says 2.4 in the paper. Right. All right, so uh, with such a small band gap, you're going to start to interfere with uh, absorption in the visible region. So if you want to make a visibly transparent device, band gap material. So you need a large band gap material to make right. it visibly transparent. All right. Um, and you also get less less efficiency because you're not any, absorbing any of that uh, blue or UV light in that case, right? That's right. Yeah, so yeah, so you get parasitic absorption in the, in the buffer layer in that case. So to compare that cadmium sulfide to the zinc sulfide that you used, uh, cad sulfide has a 2.4 electron volt band gap, and the zinc sulfide has 3.7. Right. So based on that, um, zinc sulfide, if, if you deposit that, what that basically means is that if you deposit a very thick layer of zinc sulfide on glass compared to an equivalent thick, thickness of cadmium sulfide on glass, you're going to have a lot more visible light absorption of the cadmium sulfide than you would on the zinc sulfide. So that's that, that's what I'm kind of getting at with uh, visibly transparent applications. Okay. So, um, continuing onward, I mentioned uh, that if we don't do anything with the zinc sulfide, we get a pretty crappy efficiency out of it, only about 0.6% power conversion efficiency. So, in order to fix that, we looked at um, we looked at a few papers in the literature where people were able to improve the conductivity of zinc sulfide uh, through various methods. Our method that worked well on our devices was to uh, simultaneously co-deposit aluminum sulfide with zinc sulfide, and that dramatically improved the conductivity and the efficiency of the devices went up to 1.8%, which was equivalent to the controls. Oh, well, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because you have more carriers or you gave more opportunities for... It's because aluminum aluminum will do, will donate an electron into the layer if you, if you use that as a dopant, uh, because aluminum has three valence electrons, zinc only has two. So uh, if you add a certain amount, if you have a given amount of aluminum sulfide to the zinc sulfide layer, you're going to dramatically improve your conductivity. If you add too much aluminum sulfide, you're going to run into some problems because you'll you'll reach a solubility limit in the zinc sulfide layer, and at that point you're effect, essentially going to form uh, domains or blobs of aluminum sulfide in the layer. And aluminum sulfide itself, um, we suspect we haven't. We haven't been able to find any values or measure it ourselves, but we suspect that it has a very low resistivity, uh, given what we've seen. So uh, you'll see that in figure, figure three, two, right? Uh, figure two and figure three, uh, where we plot the we plot some data from all the concentrations that we used. And at 20%, the devices, if we add 20% aluminum sulfide, the devices are completely shut off. Right. You can see that in the the very bottom graph. And yeah. so did you choose aluminum sulfide because the, I mean, the unit cells are similar enough so that when you deposit them, you don't introduce too much strain between the layers, or what led to that kind of decision? Well, uh, before we settled on aluminum sulfide, we were just trying to dope with um, with straight aluminum or pure silver, and we would 
these would be uh, structural dopants. So that just adding the uh, aluminum or silver interstitials would serve as, would theoretically serve as uh, nucleation points for the zinc sulfide, and theoretically that should improve its structure, and we'd see improvements in crystallinity, and therefore improvements in conductivity. That's not really how it went down. Uh, we settled on aluminum sulfide, um, essentially because we, essentially because you're adding you're adding just aluminum within the same sulfur matrix, so to speak. Structural dopants is now it's now only serving as an electronic dopant. Okay, so it's actually staying in the it's going in interstitials. Right. Interesting. Hmm. I, makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see. Well, how does that lend to the strain or stress that your device can handle? Or is that not a main concern of yours? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, we see from the device data that uh, the device can handle about, uh, we, we see that it's optimized at 5 volumetric percent aluminum sulfide. Um, any higher than that, you start to form those those domains of, that I was talking about of aluminum sulfide. And if you look at figure four in the XRD plots, the crystallinity begins to suffer because of that. And uh, if you look at the 20% uh, aluminum sulfide concentration, the resistivity starts to shoot right back up because uh, now you're you're forming so many of those aluminum sulfide interstitials that you're just completely wrecking the structure of the material and uh, conductivity suffers because of that. Okay. So that is that sort of that that could be part of that uh, forming or passing the solubility limit of aluminum right. sulfide in in the zinc sulfide, right? Okay, so you you don't really care. All right, let's let's go back to Savan's question. I you was, don't really I, care about the strain that these devices are going to be under, right? Because you're not in general, you don't me- mechanically deform like right, the yeah. solar cell, so right, it doesn't yeah. matter to you. Sorry, I didn't mean to dance around that question. Yeah, that doesn't matter, really matter to us. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because um, I definitely get what you're saying about having, you know, overabundant domains that, you know, start to become detrimental to your device and kind of go against what you're trying to get done. That makes sense to me, and the results do support that. But, yeah, I was just curious from a mechanical perspective, if you're adding interstitials to an already existing structure, how is that going to change their, um, like, mechanical behavior and, you know, stress, ability to dissipate stress, if they're in that situation. And, and Savannah actually raised a good point. It's like you said, initially you were adding aluminum as a structural dopant. Right. And you changed it to be purely an electrical dopant. And I, I guess I guess that, that, that that's actually a good question. Why why did the structural component of the aluminum stop mattering so much to you in this experiment? Well, so the idea behind a structural dopants um, is to is to improve the crystalline order of the zinc sulfide. Of the zinc sulfide itself. So, uh, if we, if aluminum, if just adding straight aluminum improved the crystalline order, then you would see you would see higher diffraction peaks on the XRD scans, and um, higher crystalline order will also give you higher conductivity. So, uh, one of the main points of trying to get this get the zinc sulfide layer up to up to spec on the up to spec uh, compared to the controls is that you need to improve its conductivity. So that's why we would want to structurally dope it. Okay. But then it turns out you didn't want that after all. You just wanted the extra. Well, it turns out when we tried it on devices, it didn't really work very well. So, did you, yeah. I'm sorry if you answered this question already, but did, why, did, why did you settle on aluminum as your structural dopant? Were there other uh, elements you could have tried? Uh, 
Uh, well, we just we settle on it based on the chemical valence of aluminum. So uh, aluminum has three valence electrons. Uh, zinc only has two. So if we mix aluminum into the zinc sulfide, then aluminum should donate an extra electron and therefore dope it N-type. Okay. All right. Uh, so I'm actually a little curious about how these are made. In general, you make the, the organic component through a wet deposition process. Is that right? Um, some papers do that. Okay, how do you do it? We do everything through thermal deposition. So we'll take we'll take a, a container known as a boat for those listeners who don't usually do any evaporation. We'll take this boat. It's usually made of uh, of tungsten, and we'll fill the pockets in this boat with the material that we want to evaporate. That boat and the boat heats up resistive, resistively for the same reason why a 60 watt light bulb gets hot when you turn it on, and uh, that heat will cause the material in that boat to uh, sublimate and uh, if you aim the boats toward your desired substrates, then the material is going to sublimate toward that substrate and it'll deposit on there at whatever thickness you want it to if you calibrate it. Okay, this is the same as <clears throat> same way we we use to grow a lot of devices in the semiconductor. Uh, well, not maybe not in the semiconductor industry in uh, MPE though. You would use evaporation right. to deposit yeah. things. Yeah, that's correct. So in this case, when when you doped this zinc sulfide with the aluminum sulfide, did you just measure out weights and then put those in the boat together, or did you have two separate boats and try to adjust the power to get different amounts in there? So that, that's a great question, and it's one that comes up a lot. So if you were to mix the two materials into the same boats, what's going to happen is uh, you'll heat it up to a given to a given temperature, and you'll essentially just distill the material. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll pass the sublimation points of one material but not the other, and then once you finally hit the sublimation point of the other one, you're not going to be able to control the concentration very well. So what we do in this study is we use two separate boats, and we calibrate each of the, uh, we calibrate zinc sulfide and aluminum sulfide individually, so we know uh, what, what amount of power gives us what deposition rates in uh, units of angstroms per second. And then once we, and then we can then deposit them with the and we control the we control the individual rates of the materials, and uh, so that's why in the paper we, I mentioned that we volumetrically dope it uh, because we're measuring these deposition rates in angstroms per second. Perfect. That's what I wanted to hear. All right. Um, so, Chris, what's the next step now that you've improved the efficiency efficiencies? I mean, you've You've mentioned um, transitioning into having a completely transparent photovoltaic device. Is that correct? That's right. So the next step is um, is trying to find a way to further optimize this material so we can get higher thicknesses of it. Uh, so I mentioned way back when I was talking about the roles of the buffer layer that this layer needs to protect the active organic layers during the deposition of the cathode. Now, when we make transparent devices, um, you can't you can't thermally deposit endotin oxide. You have to sputter it, and the sputtering process is very damaging to to uh, organic layers, uh, just because they're they're the sputtering process is a, is a much more just forceful process. So to speak. I'm not really sure how to describe that any better. But um, so in order to protect those layers, you need a really thick buffer there. Uh, so the buffer layer can take all the damage and leave the or leave the organic layers relatively untouched. Uh, in this study, we were only able to get uh, our 1.8% efficiency with 50 angstrom buffer layer devices. If you go much higher than that, then the efficiency starts to tank again. Um, so 
in future work, we'll want to further optimize the conductivity of this layer either uh, with uh, either by fine-tuning the aluminum sulfide concentration or just by finding a different material altogether since this is just a first demonstration and all. Uh, so yeah, the end goal again in the end goal in uh, switching to, this, to switching to transparent devices is having a really thick buffer layer. Okay, and that, why why do you want thicker though? We want a thicker buffer layer because we need to uh, better protect the organic layers oh. uh, during the deposition of the cathode. Okay, so the thicker, the more safe it is. It's not just any layer is good enough. That's right. It just needs to be just the thicker layer, the more safer it is. You described it perfectly. <laughs> the more safer it is. The more, the safer. more safer it is. <laughs> I study right. good. Right? Yeah, we've done good, good sciences. Yeah. We've been doing some good science. All right. Well, Chris, um, it's very exciting stuff. This is this is kind of neat. Yeah, thank you for sharing your your paper with us. I'm positively yeah. giddy. Chase has been here wrapped in att- attentively listening. Enthralled in every word you mention. <laughs> it's true. Well, thank you for uh, letting me discuss this. This is uh, any any publicity for our lab is important. Right. Oh, well, why don't you actually you tell us where tell your us lab about I have not talked lab. about our lab. You want to so, give some shout-outs to some people? And I'll give a, I'll give some shout-outs to my co-authors, uh, Peggy Young, uh, Sean Wagner, uh, Pompong Zhang, Per Asklin, Miles Barr, and my advisor, Richard Blunt. Uh, Peggy is um, one of my dear friends in my lab. She is second author because she helped me write a good bit of this paper. Uh, Sean was responsible for the AFM Zhang is Sean's advisor, so we had to put her on there too. Pear uh, <laughs> <laughs> helped us do some uh, some of the uh, electrical char- electrical characterization work. Um, we actually had a whole another figure that we wanted to put on for um, that where we measured the work functions of zinc sulfide doped with various aluminum sulfide concentrations, but that's that we had to take it out. But we're going to leave him on there anyway. Uh, Miles Miles is uh, one of Dr. Lunt's friends from MIT, and he helped us he he helped he helped provide the experimental device stack that we used for this paper and uh well dr wants the advisor he's always on the papers <laughs> without him you wouldn't even be doing this paper am i right all right uh, so let's now maybe move into the uh salt the salt 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 surf the salt water it's hot just gonna, let's go into the water guys i uh, guess we talked about salt two episodes ago but I, I was not. I don't listen. You quit. I don't listen to you, the show. Yeah. <laughs> you were on it. <laughs> That's right. So I need to he lived to it. it. It's like it's like <laughs> no, saying, it's like in How Many Mother when 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 um Marshall's like the only people who haven't watched Star Wars are the people who were in the movie because they lived the Star Wars. It's like that for this podcast. My mom my mom was like telling me she listens to the show and I said why? That was my immediate <laughs> <best> sort of <laughs> reaction. <was> why? <laughs> oh, Chris, do you listen to the show? I listen Lion. to the episodes I'm on. Yeah. Vain. I make it a rule to listen to every episode because... Because then your life has meaning. What? Did no, I just I say that like out loud? I, I don't want to force people to listen to something that I wouldn't listen to. So it's always on my Aww. playlist somewhere. Aw, buddy. That's so like, nice. How noble of you. <laughs> um, even though I already listened to it for four hours while I was editing it, I still listen to it the final project <laughs> once it's published. Where do you find time to do things that are important? I don't. It's important. This <laughs> is my life. Oh. Maybe you know. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> sad. Sad. Suddenly, you know, playing video games for six hours, 
on a Sunday doesn't feel so pathetic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do instead of playing video games. Like, I don't play video games or anything. Oh, you think you're better than me now. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's play Move. some music and go to the, the next uh, story. So from the sun, we move to the surf. Yeah. Uh, Jay, so no turf. No turf. No turf. Well, we could talk about McDonald's. Sure. I, I, I don't know if it's true. I just saw. I don't that. either. I, don't I just saw something about Jamie Oliver, and I was like, ooh, I like, I like reading about Jamie Oliver. <laughs> Apparently, I don't know who Jamie Oliver is. McDonald's is what? It's a celebrity show. Okay. Um, oh. Kids food should be healthy. That's his whole thing. What? His whole thing is kids. Kids food and fast food should be healthier. Oh, like like school lunches should be healthier, food should be healthier. Yeah. Getting distracted. All right. Um, so from the sun, we moved to the surf. Uh, so last month, uh, researchers from the U.S. Navy, or funded by the U.S. Navy, announced they'd uh, done a proof of concept for a process where they convert sea, salt water from the sea into jet fuel. There was no special processes needed to use this fuel. So it could be it could be a drop-in fuel for all sorts of uh, for for pretty much any engine that the Navy uses in its planes and in its uh, ships. So obviously it's a very very exciting uh, technology. The press release said that the initial cost in dollars is about three to six dollars per gallon, and it could heavily reduce the U.S. Navy's dependence on oil and also re- reduce its dependence on. Convoys, refueling convoys, and the ship could pretty much stay on station indefinitely until they ran out of food. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's a very... That's awesome. Yeah, it's a very awesome, but uh, the actual energy cost, like, the big, the big, the cost in dollars is not very much. The cost in energy is... Isn't the cost in dollars always related to the cost in energy, though? No, it's, um, you, to a certain extent... But like it's also it's you know how like ethanol was not a very efficient process for making fuel yeah uh, because you were spending more more actual power than to, to create to convert it than you were to get fuel out of it would you would get out of it by burning it uh-huh. it's a similar sort of thing I think it's might even be worse <laughs> but it's you know you're converting salt water to fuel now the way that that works is that they're doing a, <clears throat> it's a it's a multi step process so. They're, dig- they're basically what they're doing is they're extracting uh, hydrogen gas and carbon dioxide out of salt water using uh, ion exchange. Yeah, using an ion, using ion exchange. Yeah. Uh, to, to just you know separate those out from the seawater. They got. They, I think they believe they reported 92% efficiency on removing CO2 from salt water. Which, really? Yes. 92%, 92% efficiency. Wow. Yeah, 92% efficiency at removing the. Uh, removing. At, at, yeah, and then uh, you're, they're using. They, in the press release, it says it's proprietary, but based on what that actually, based on like the, based on like the established science that's, that they're actually using, is probably something fairly similar to the Fischer-Tropsch process, which is uh, a collection of chemical reactions that converts a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen into liquid hydrocarbons. 
Okay. And that's already an established process, but normally that uses uh, carbon monoxide. That's the end. It's a instead of carbon dioxide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess we should start, or we should go and explain what, how you can make fuel from this, how it's even possible. Mm-hmm. So in, in general, a uh, hydrocarbon fuel, something like gasoline or diesel or whatever. It's just a long is, chain of hydrogen. Yeah, it's just a long chain of carbon with a bunch of hydrogen stuck all the way around the edge to and, fill out. And when you ignite the that, it the, when you uh, ignite that, the, the the energy is released from the breaking of the bonds. Yeah. So every every bond has a lot of energy in it. If you took chemistry, you would know this. And every time you break one of those bonds, you can get some of it out. Comes out in heat or something. Yeah. And this is where you guys did the whole calorimetry yeah. lab. Yeah. Where you got to measure the exact energy of those bonds, hopefully. So. Yeah. So in general, a uh, a chain of carbon between five and eight carbons long becomes uh, petroleum fuel, so gasoline. A chain of carbon between nine and sixteen becomes something like diesel, kerosene, or jet fuel. And then anything fewer than four or fewer is going to be a vapor or a gas. So it's something like butane, methane. Or methane, yeah. So butane is four carbons, methane is one carbon. So all you have to do is, so what we're doing is we're pulling carbon dioxide out of seawater. And carbon dioxide actually has a lot of seawater in it. Or no, seawater has a lot of carbon dioxide. I'm, yeah, I'm, that's I'm, a, <laughs> uh, It's actually, this is actually a, a process that, again, because the nature of people is to completely overreact to new, to scientific news. Uh, everybody's like, this is a game changer, it's the death of the petroleum industry, blah, blah, blah. But uh, and then they're also claiming that this is going to reverse the uh, process of uh, the acidification, acid, of the, acid acidification of the, of the ocean. I mean, it would it will be good to get some of the carbon dioxide out of the ocean because we do have been depositing a lot. It is all the ocean is almost saturated. Yeah. So well, part of it is all right. We have to we have to think about it like rationally because what it would be doing is or right now. Seawater has 140 times more carbon dioxide than air does, mm-hmm. uh, and it's mostly it's in there in the form of uh, carbonates. Carbonates and bicarbonates are the, are the vast bulk of it. Carbonic acid, uh, and that's three percent of it. Most of it is bicarbonate, yes, and one percent is carbonate. Then all of this is dissolved into the ocean, and it comes from a few different sources. It comes a lot of it comes from from the actual atmosphere. Um, so as we add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, that has to go somewhere. So it, some of it will get dissolved into the ocean water. Um, and then that makes the ocean more acidic, and that's what's killing all the coral and everything. Uh, and that, so it's very bad. So this process takes some of that CO2 gas out of the ocean water, but then it just converts it into this hydrocarbon fuel that we burn and then again is releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. So eventually it's just going to get redissolved back into the ocean. Uh, so it's still going to contribute to it's, global warming and all that. It's not a carbon it's not a carbon neutral fuel source. Yeah. But it is definitely, I would say, better than uh, than mining it out of the ground. Mining it out of yeah. the ground. Yeah. So the advantages you have from mining it out of the ground, uh, not maybe not for everybody, but at least for the Navy, is that Again, they don't have to transport the fuel, which is very expensive. You can make it on-site. Yeah, you make it right there. And then uh, you also aren't going to run out of it necessarily. There may be some situation where you run out of it where there's not enough in the ocean, but that's 
not running out of it in the same way that we would run out of Petrol, petroleum like, fuel or uh, just oil. Yeah. Um, oh, I have a couple questions on this. Um, oh, you're, you're, did your microphone change or something? You're kind of a scratchy. Oh, uh, I know. <laughs> I hear you guys just fine. No, but we, we're, we're hearing you a little bit. We're hearing you weird. Well, whatever. It, it's still understandable. Sorry about the audio quality, listeners. Sorry. I'm sorry, too. I don't know what I did. Anyway, let's see. So, um, you mentioned this a few minutes ago. I just wanted to clarify. How much energy does it take to actually produce this fuel from ocean water, and uh, does that make any appreciable dent into the, usab- into the usability you get out of this fuel once it's already made on the ship? The press release itself doesn't really go into that, but you, like, you know, going through, like, a few, like, you know, other, like, art, like, you know, other news articles talking about it, it is just not, it isn't a super efficient process, and it also is in its infancy. I believe that, um, they were looking to get, like, uh, they were looking to, like, increase the efficiency by 2020. I remember reading a part of that, you know, press release on that, like, uh, they want to get that up. They want to get it up from like a six. Like right now, they're getting a sixty percent conversion level from of the CO two to the uh, long chain hydrocarbon, and they're looking to get that up quite a bit, and that'll drive the cost and the energy cost down. Uh, but the uh, they really did not. They really are not very like forthcoming with the numbers. And again, this just this just got released uh, as a press release last month. And April eighth. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to speak to the Secretary of the Navy when he came into Arizona State and gave a lecture on uh, the Navy's sustainability policy, um, which is actually uh, surprisingly uh, good, and they're actually doing a pretty good job of meeting their, their goals. Yeah, I think they're the only branch they're, of the United States government reaching, reaching all their goals. Their for, sustainability goals. They're doing uh, a very good job. Uh, but the, the I asked the Secretary, I, he did not address this in his speech because uh, he didn't really want to talk too much about it, but when I asked him a question about it, he said, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat, but we do not have, uh, <laughs> we do not have a, uh, a lot of, like, a, a good idea of what the, what the potential of this is going to be, or, like, what the, how much of an, a useful application this is going to be for us at this time. Okay. We still need to figure out what is, what we can, what, what the actual efficiency of this is, how usable it's going to be, how, how, how much we can scale up the process to be, like, a shipboard thing. So there's a lot. So it's like he's like it's very promising, it's very exciting, but we have no idea what the actual usability will be in fleet operations. So it might cost a lot of energy to make this fuel in the first place, and it might not be great to well, use overall. Well, I mean, if you had, I mean, you're not. It's not going to be like a thing. It's not. It's just like uh, it's not going to be. It's not like you just scoop up water and then put it yeah. in a box and then convert it. You, you still have the power of the... You have to power, power the equipment. To convert. Yeah, exactly. And it could take time. And um, Because it is a multi-stage reaction process uh, to actually convert it in. Uh, again, I don't... It's not confirmed the press release, but I do think, based on what it is, I do think it is based off this Fischer-Troch process. Okay. And, but... Uh, what, the, what the press release of the Navy released is that they are using... After they use the, the ion exchange, electro, they use electrolytic cation exchange model, uh, they call it an ESEM, and they, once they use that to extract the hydrogen gas and the carbon dioxide gas from the salt water, they have to use uh, an iron catalyst to um, sort of like... 
to bond to, them to together. Break, to, the first step is you break the uh, you have to break the carbon bonds to the oxygen, and then you form and then you form the carbon bonds with the form the carbon carbon bonds etc. And just kind of go on like that. So the breaking the oxygen bond is like the big part of why oh, it's like the big energy cost of that step of the reaction is breaking that oxygen bond. Okay, because basically doing that is. Uh it's almost an extra burn step, right? Yeah. Because to burn, when you burn something, you're generally separating the oxygen and making carbon dioxide. Oh, so it's reversing, like burning. I think that response, the um, whoever you saw, oh, is Secretary of the Navy. Secretary of the Navy. That was just code for it's classified past year security clearance. Uh, was it? I don't know. Oh, we don't have any application. No, he, really, he, he honestly did not know. Like, he answered a bunch of other questions. People asked him a bunch of other technical questions that he didn't know anything about it. So he was kind of like, he, he's just a, he's just doing fleet administration stuff. Oh, so, that's too bad. Okay, I think that part of the I think that um, point is uh, the efficiency. Like the big the big step where it's like you have to is you have to break you have to break all these you have to break the bond between the carbon and the oxygen. Uh, the byproducts of this uh, the Fisher Tropes byproducts are. It's just hydrocarbons okay. and water. So cool. Yeah. Nice. But the big so the big waste product of that process is that you if you don't get long chain hydrocarbons, you're releasing some uh, some pretty. You release a lot of methane. Methane is the big problem. Is so you release and that's a greenhouse gas. It's not something we want in the atmosphere. So the problem is that you if you want you need to have it grow these long hydrocarbon chains. So it's not enough to just like you know stick all this stuff into a reactor and just like break a bunch of bonds. You also have to have a uh, a catalyst in that step in order to promote the growth of long chain hydrocarbons, which is why they're using that iron that uh, iron based catalyst. Yeah. So this says that the, this other article um, says that they have a significantly decreased the unwanted methane production. Yes. And uh, so they're only making these long chain hydrocarbons. So methane is really bad because it's a significantly worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just only stays in the, it doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so carbon dioxide will stay for I think hundreds of years, and methane is like on the order of ten years. Mm-hmm. But it's still but methane is like a hundred times worse than carbon yeah. dioxide in the time that it's there. Yeah, and, uh, if, you're, and if you're going to scale this up to an industrial stuff or, or industrial level production where you're using this process a lot, you do not want to just be releasing a lot of methane that'll that'll be even worse than just mining this, this crap out of the ground. Yeah, yeah. So, really, the applications of this, people are saying, I, I guess what we're saying is like this is a really cool technology, but it has limited application. It really is a purely, this is cool for the Navy. Yeah, it's great for the Navy. It's great for the Navy. It's, it's, it, it'll definitely help reduce dependence on uh, foreign oil and stuff. And, you know, yeah, it would be, it would also be, and it's like, again, a lot of this, a lot of like the, Advantages of this are strategic rather than scientific or uh, environment or sustainability wise. It really would uh, help, like you know. So like the only su- the only sustainable or the only environmental advantages to this process are that there's no mining mm-hmm. and there's no uh, you won't run out of this. There or, or I'm sorry, you you will run out of this. Once you run out of oil, this will still be there for time. For a, for a, so this for is just similar. another source of oil. It's still bad for the environment. It still puts out CO2. It's uh, it's not a carbon neutral process. It's going yeah. and you, and again and to use it the real so like again the advantages are again strategic and then also that 
it will not require a very expensive conversion process to use this new fuel. So it's like if you want to make a solar power jet, that would be like a, a just awful, awful amount of money you'd have to drop into R&D to get that working. Whereas this, you can use solar power as the power source to manufacture this fuel. So it could be sustainable. And then, it could be well, and then you and then you can just drop and then you can drop this fuel into into uh, a, a existing already existing engines. And yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so like that's the, the advantage. That's the main advantage. And they're also saying, and then also, you know, it's more of a last resort than a long term sustainable energy plan. Yeah, it's not. It's certainly for the from the standpoint of long term sustainable energy, it is not. Um, it is not like a game. It's not a game changer like people are saying it is. It's really just like a, gives you give us a little bit of tactical flexibility and like a, a little maybe extends the lifetime the service lifetime of our you know oil our hydrocarbon fuel burning yeah so may, maybe it's bad who knows yeah, I, it might it might encourage people to continue using hydrocarbons past the point where it would be economically economically viable otherwise I'm saying well so. I mean. One could make the argument we're already in that phase. Where yeah, it's economic, well, we are. It's economic. We are. We are. It's, it's. We should be focusing more on on carbon neutral forms of power. Yeah, and I, yeah. it's it's. It, we really do have a big. And again, a big part of that is like the cost. Is the cost of converting over to a new system. But that was actually an interesting point that the um, that the secretary of the navy made in his speech is that the navy is surprisingly. Uh, forward-looking when it comes to power sources. Uh, they are definitely, like, you know, because he was saying that the Navy has been has led the charge in pretty much every uh, new power technology for the last 200 years in this country. Like, they were the ones who led from sales. They were the ones who did the, first started, like, the, using steam power. They were the first ones to use oil power after they, after, you know, like, to try to reduce our dependence on coaling stations. They were the first to adopt nuclear technology. Yeah. So, while so. I'm while I'm not 100% of a history buff, mm-hmm. um, are you sure he wasn't just perhaps playing up the institution a bit? I, oh, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure, yeah, he's definitely, like, like, obviously, he's saying, like, you know. But, like that but sounds I mean, great and all, but I have a hard time just believing it. Offhand, I feel like even myself. if you just look at what they have, at the very least, they're the adopter of nuclear power. Okay. Uh, I don't know France. that. I don't know that by any number, but France. France, okay. But if you look at all the Navy's ships, at one point were nuclear powered. I think it's just submarines and aircraft carriers. Okay. A lot. Of but them. I'm saying as a, as a, as a new as a new, I'm saying that like they are. They're a big component in energy research. In, in sure, energy, fair again, enough. And yeah. again, um, even not maybe not the best, biggest, but they are a big component. The uh, I do the one thing I do know about is that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of colonization, especially the Pacific, like during the late 1800s, was specific. Like a lot of those islands got snatched up specifically to make coaling stations mm-hmm. for naval vessels, mm-hmm. so you could load, so they could load up with coal to increase their range, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the Navy does not like to like as all mil- no military no military likes to be vulnerable in the sense that they would have to have like rely on like a coaling station that could be easily taken over because it's just a coaling station. Sure, yeah. So they would so they were they they, they were one of some of the first people to uh, before cars were even like a thing like you know a thing like before tanks were widespread mm-hmm. they were trying to push for the whole like let's get our ships on diesel engines instead of 
steam engines. So interesting. So that's like yes, it is a it is a more forward reach, reaching sort of like gotta look for the next thing because you're strategically viable, not just you know to make things strategically viable as well as tactically viable. So yeah. mm-hmm. and really, I think a lot of this a lot of this could be political also yeah. in that oh we don't have to depend on oil from regions that might not be friendly to the United States <laughs> Russia. <laughs> uh, I, I'm just yeah. If if we uh, so if you sell if we sold this to West if if, if this got this is technology got sold to Western Europe that would actually heavily depend reduce their dependence on uh, their military dependence if not their not their civilian dependence on Russian ga- natural gas and oil which would help them uh, I don't know stand up to Putin a little bit more. Hmm. I mean, well, I mean, I mean that's this is a ten years out or more yeah, thing, so it's, it's not like Putin is still going to be president. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Anyway, um, but welcome to Laser Materials Politics Podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm just saying that they, they're like again a lot of this, uh, but that's just kind of tying into what we're saying is that the this advancement is less. A scientific revolution as it is a, pol- a political and strategic tactical. sort of tactical. All right. Strate- mm-hmm. It is strategic and tactical. Yeah. Uh, advantage. So that's just so it, it is neat. It is pretty cool that they man- that they're that they're doing this. You know, kind of gives kind of gives a uh, credit to all of those crazy rumors that were floating around the seventies that the government had a car that ran out of water. That's true. <laughs> all right. There you go. You gotta subscribe to. I don't know if that was actually a thing or if I just saw that on that '70s show. <laughs> I'm treating it as credible. Fair enough. So, uh, but yeah, so that's just uh, it's cool stuff. Yeah, very kind of a neat uh, process. Um, anybody have anything to add? Chris, you still with us? USA. USA. <laughs> very good. Well done, Patriot. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's that's everything for today. Um, yeah, we've been at this for a while, but maybe we're a little rusty. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. We'll see how this edits down. So. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some of us were napping during the recording. Yeah, Chase. <laughs> David. I've had, what, six David. cups of espresso? Yeah, you've... A lot of espresso. You guys are the ones drinking beer. All right. All right. Well, um, Chris, thank you for joining us over the internet. And uh, oh, it was a pleasure. And sharing your paper with us. And yeah, sharing thank you your so paper with us. That was, That's really cool. It's nice to have someone who knew what they were talking about on the show for a change. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, th- I think we uh, should kind of focus a little bit more on, on graduate students talking about their own actual research. Anyway, thank you everybody for joining us. And thank you to Chris and Chase and Savan. Thank you for having us. I, I'm not Do we have a sign off? Does anybody have a sign off? Jesse. This has been the Laser Science Materials Science Podcast Science Science Science. I said science way too many times like that. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that you, you just, after the third science, you just realized you had a thing and started going with it. That's fine. I like it. I like it's, that. It's good. It's classic, Chris. Yeah. And again, our fuel was, or <laughs> our theme today was the uh, the summer. First show of summer. We tried to find something about, like, hot dogs, but not that hard. <laughs> as, as in we didn't even Google no, it. No, I Googled it while I was uh, while Chris was talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, no, couldn't find anything. <laughs> nothing, All right. nothing worth talking about. Anyway, but uh Thank you for joining us, yeah. listeners. Hey, as always, thanks for listening in. Alright, bye. Later. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening. This has been Laser. Let's agree science and engineering are rad. 
Show notes with links to everything we talked about are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email to contact at laserpodcast.com, contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook or Google+. If you want to help out the podcast, you can tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, or you can use the Amazon affiliate link on our website before you make any Amazon purchases. Thanks to the band Crying for providing our intro music, and to The Wild for providing our outro music. is the theme for this episode? What do we want to call this? Um, sun and sea? I don't know. What is he using his stupid thing for? Solar? Is it for solar applications? Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's a solar show. Sun and sea. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There you go. Sun and sea is the title of this episode. Or, uh, I don't know. I, I don't I've know, never like, seen you speechless. It's very I'm weird. I think of like there's like a phrase that involves both you know sunshine and ocean but, like, water. Like how many? I, I have a hard time with those like puns. It's a sur- or it's, it's it's a uh, idiom. Surf and sun. No, it's a uh, surf and turf. What? It's our su- it's our our summers ep- it's our summer episode. Okay, we're about intro to the summer talk- episode. Welcome yeah. to the summer episode. We're talking about the ocean and we're talking about you know solar power. Okay, I like that. That's actually really good. Yeah. Actually, you finally had and a good can, idea, Chase. You know, I'll go try to find. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll throw in a little bonus about how we talk about how uh, there's a rumor floating on the internet that McDonald's beef is only 15% actual beef. You know what? I'm actually okay with that kind of stuff. I still think this is a good transition to drunk science, our spin-off podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we get people drunk, really, really drunk, and make them talk about their research. That would be great. That would be great. At a bar? Sure. I mean, if you could find if you could find a bar where it's not too loud to record, which yeah. is All right. okay. Right. I'd also like to give a big shout-out to their friend Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> uh, Thank you, all, parents. Through him are all things are possible. Praise him. He had his hand up. No one saw it, but it was very effective to what he was saying. Yeah. a stack of Bibles for extra prayer You have a stack of Bibles here just for this case situation. We keep all the ones that we get from missionaries. Do you have to swear on a stack of Bibles now? The more, you know, it's called super swearing. They just invented it. It's like the more Bibles, the better, the more power you're swearing. Wow. So every court case up until today has not really counted? Yeah, it double counts if you put two Bibles on it. It actually cancels out a previous swear-in, and it's kind of like double negatives. So, you know. So you have to do odd numbers. Yeah, yeah, odd numbers. So if it's an even number, it cancels it out. If you swear on two Bibles, it actually is the same as swearing on no Bibles. 
Oh, snap. Lesson learned, kids. Swear on odd you, numbered you Bibles. This on, you learned this on Laser Material Science Podcast. We're <laughs> also considering adding religion stuff, religion section, because we're very, very educated. We know a lot, <laughs> we know about, a lot about, about religion. religion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's it. And also get us qualified as a science podcast in South Carolina. <laughs> this is the required required we had, we, we had to give we had to give equal time to uh, alternate theories. All right. Uh, so what's the alternate theory for the organic solar cell buffer layers? A miracle. Of course. <laughs> God I, did it. I should have been sun. able to figure that out. The, the, All right. Uh, the, the, the sun, the sun is God's light, benevolent light shining down on our faces. Okay. Yeah, that's how it. That's how and it the goes. more the more efficient it is, the more he loves that's us. Right. I think I, pretty, I probably just cost a bunch of listeners in some poor countries. Goodbye, South America. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chase. I'm sorry. Your Pope is rad. Pope is rad. Pope nice, is rad. nice save. Good save there. <laughs>